All right, let's get started. I, I, don't, I don't know how long it's going to take, and I really want to invite you guys to share your own thoughts and your own experiences about this stuff. It's just, as, as most of you know, obviously you'd have to be living under a rock not to know that. There's a lot of stuff going on uh, with the COVID mandates, the vaccine mandates, with you just name it, all kinds of crazy stuff. It's a lot of stuff that, that we've never seen. And, and it, uh, you know, I feel like we live in a, a fairly free area here, uh, free of those kind of things. Although it's starting to pop up now as people are uh, having to consider the mandate for their job or stuff like that. So anyway, I've, I've had a lot of conversations with people and everybody that I know of that, that's, you know, all of you that, that will know that I've had conversations with you about it. And then other people that I've been talking to, people are handling it really well. I think they're handling it especially in, in some real Christ-like ways and stuff. But I wanted to, uh, I also know that there's lingering thoughts and there's lingering questions. And sometimes the questions sort of tend over toward, God, why aren't you doing something? And I'm not asking for a show of hands. Um, I don't think that any of us like to think that we think that way. Uh, and, and then I, I, I just, but we just got through talking about the gospel and how the good news of the gospel flows out of the heart of the Father. And so I wanted to kind of throw an anchor out there for us about the heart of God and why, uh, why things might be a little bit the way they are. At least uh, it could be a conversation started with you and God. So that's what I'm going to try to do. So here we go. Uh, facing confusion and trials, we're going to start by looking at James chapter 1. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So, Here's the passage in James. Uh, Let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Some of what goes on in our lives is about us. And it's shaped by the intentions of God for us to be perfect and complete. Now, do I think God's one orchestrating mandates or sending COVID or doing that? No, he certainly doesn't have to. He has a full, he has a full set of tools to work with by just creating people in his image and letting them have the freedom to grow and to exercise that freedom and to do it goofily and crazily from time to time. And I think a lot of that's going on. He also has a lot to work with about fear. And he's constantly, if you remember the word that Jason shared last week, He's constantly saying, fear not, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. But God is not ignorant of the fact that a lot of our society and a lot of our uh, government and a lot of our culture is fear-driven. But I don't want us to be that way. Okay, I don't want us to be that way. Because I, and I really think for, for most of you in this room who, who know Jesus and who have committed yourself to serve him, I think the only real source of fear might be if we lose touch with what we think God's intentions are and his heart is. And so I want to I want to talk about that just a little bit. It says, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God, who gives to all generously without reproach. But he must ask in faith without any doubting. Now, let me say something about that. 
There was a time in my life when, when I saw something like that without doubting, that became a huge burden on me. It became a huge work. It became something that I had to try to manually discipline my consciousness on. What that's being established as, I think, is an explanation. Because look at what it says. But he must ask in faith without any doubting. First of all, let's back up. If you lack wisdom, let him ask God who gives to all generously and without reproach. In other words, something you'll never hear from God after you ask him for something is, well, shame on you for not already having that. That's just not how it works. That's not how it works. That's not how any good father treats his children, right? Uh, And it may be the 10th time you've asked, but it's without reproach. But then it says, if you lack wisdom, let him ask God who gives all generously without reproach, and it will be given him. But So we're in the midst of a promise here, not a legal thing. But he must ask in faith without doubting. And then it explains why. Why? Because the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man and unstable in all his ways. So the way I like to think about that, and the way I think it's correct to think about it, is if God wants, I ask God to give me something like this. And, and then so he's holding that out. And I'm going, and changing my, my footing, changing my standing all the time, where does the gift land? That's why I think this is an admonition. Have faith without doubt. Without doubt about what? Without doubt about God. Because that's the subject of this topic. God gives the wisdom without reproach. So don't doubt that. Relax. Have faith. Receive. Right? It's a significant deal. So uh, there's other interpretations, I'm sure. But um, the description in the why there is because it creates us as an unstable platform. Us with an unstable mind. So I don't want to do that. Why might some things be delayed? Okay, so James says, count it all joy when you face diverse trials. That's a choice that we can make. Why are we facing these trials? Why, and this is where I I have heard people, and I've talked to people who are going, why doesn't God do something? I've even talked to this person and had that conversation. (laughs) You know, like, there are things that are just... They seem insane to me. They seem counterproductive. They seem like you're cutting your nose off as a country despite your face. I don't understand what people are trying to get out of it. I do understand fear motivation and things like that. I understand that if, if people only watch certain news channels, COVID is an entirely different scenario than it is if you take in a broader scope of the facts. And so fear is a big factor. But why... Let it happen. Why not intervene? Now, I don't know who's comfortable talking about having that question publicly. I'm not proud that I have it, but I do sometimes. But one of the great advantages that I've come to have lately in the last several years is that I know God is my Father, and He loves me. And He's not adverse to me raising a question with Him. Even if I throw like a little tantrum or something, he's not going to disown me. He's not, it's not the way to go. And you're not really in a position to hear anything while you're laying on the floor, beating on the carpet, yelling, you know. But 
it's not going to destroy his heart for me. And it's not going to destroy my place as his son. And I want us to have that confidence. Because one of the things that the flesh and the enemy both conspire to do is when we are confronted with something like the call to count it joy when we're facing trials, we try to turn that into a work. We try to turn it into a duty. And it becomes a huge burden in which God gets pushed further and further away and our focus is all on us and on our heart. And so I just want us to be able to avoid that. One of the ways that that happens is that we begin to entertain lies, just like Eve did, just like Adam did. We begin to entertain lies about the motive of God. And I wanted to follow up on our last session last week about the the good news being about the heart motive of God. That's why it's so important to be able to include in the gospel the fact that God so loved the world, he sent his only son. God loves us. He loves people. So look, do not let this one uh, fact escape your notice, beloved, uh, that with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. Now the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And so just like we talked about last week when we were talking about God's motive and believing it with John 3.16 and stuff, you don't have to explain or understand doctrinally what that implications of that are. Nobody's got to go be a universalist. Nobody's got to uh, recraft their entire eschatological belief. But you do have to believe what it says about what God wants. Because if you don't know who he is and what he wants, you're not going to have that as the anchor for your heart when things don't look the way you think they should look. Or, you know, that statement, which most of us don't make overtly, but we think a lot. If I was God, <laughs> it would be different. <laughs> you know, well, bless God that I'm not God, because if I was God, things would be different, and I'm pretty sure they wouldn't be better. Because I'd be operating out of just such a different set of heart conditions and a different set of motives. But look at what it says. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. Now, when that time differential, that, time, that temporal difference is working in our favor, we like it. If it happens to be working in favor of a circumstance that we're not comfortable with, we probably don't like it. But it's one and the same to God. A day is like a thousand years, a thousand years is like a day. I don't think we can derive a whole lot of explanation for why God acts one way at one moment and a different way the next moment, except to say that within the context of that perspective and that freedom and that reality, He can act according to His best heart, His best knowledge. And I believe that he does, and I think it's important. So in this case, it says, the Lord's not slow about his promise. As some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. This is a hard one for me to keep in the front of my mind. Uh, Al and I were talking about it from Australia. He's he's in a, a, a situation that's so much more severe than we're experiencing right here, as far as the lockdowns and uh, having to get permission to go to the grocery store and just the, the, the complete segregation of vaccinated and unvaccinated people. 
And so the things that the Lord's talking to Al about is, Al, I don't want you to give yourself permission to judge any person. You can, you can like and dislike their actions. You can determine they're right or wrong. But you have to withhold that permission to judge them. And I know that's right, but it's not easy. I know it's right, but it's not easy. I mean, I think Al's doing a great job of it. I think I'm doing a mediocre job of it. Uh, mine is more a pattern of transgressing into judgment, recognizing it, repenting, being okay again until I have the opportunity to transgress into judgment again. <laughs> but God doesn't live that way, you know? And so I, this helps me without knowing how it's going to be, without knowing even the implications or if everybody is in fact going to be kept from perishing and come to repentance, the fact that I know that's what God wants and that freedom is the housing of that, it's the container that allows this kind of desire to be poured out for humanity, then that explains to me why people who are doing things that I think they need to be horsewhipped for are still being allowed to do them. Right, Brian? (laughs) So what I can do, once I get that straight in my head, I don't have to say, oh, Larry, you don't need to think that that particular behavior or that particular manipulation or that particular control is okay. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that in this, a day is a thousand years, a thousand years is a day, temporal condition, The Lord knows what he wants to get done, and he wants to get it done in a lot of people's lives. And so he is being patient in the midst of this stuff to let it happen. It says, therefore, beloved, down a little bit further, since you look for these things, be diligent to found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. So a few verses up, it says that he's not uh, willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And take comfort in this too. He's not just saying, oh, I don't want anybody to perish. Nobody's going to get away with anything. Every self-centered, egotistical, tyrannical control is going to have to be repented of. There is going to be the facing of that music. Nothing is going to be overlooked. That's the beauty of the victory that Christ won on the cross. So we don't need to worry that the people who we think are doing us wrong are just going to skate. No. Have you ever had a time in your life where you did something wrong and you were confronted with it and it struck you in the heart? It's a, it's a terrible and a beautiful thing. That is what awaits all of us if God has his way. And nobody is going to just get a pass. Because there's no place in heaven to carry the guilt and the shame of those kinds of things. I like to say there's no safe deposit box given you when you get there where you can lock those things away and go fiddle with them later. It's a, it, it, it's a place where righteousness dwells. That means we're going to be righteous. So, if we can regard, so this is the first of the little specific things out of Scripture I want us to think about. If we can regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, that might give us 
a leg up on, oh Lord, where are you and why aren't you doing something? And then if you can think, if you can allow yourself to think, and, and you can always ask the Father, Lord, I don't know how to, how to think about this, so if you'll show me how you feel, I'll at least know. I'll try. Lord, what do you think about the people that are abusing this situation? What do you think about the politicians that are lying and making money off this at the expense of people? What do you think about people who are so callously indifferent to the careers of soldiers and nurses, teachers? Do you like what they're doing, Lord? Sure, he's going to say no. Do you love them? Yeah. Are they hard to love? I would guess he would say, not for me, but uh, I can see why they are for you. See, this is what I'm saying. If we can regard this patience not as God's indifference, and this is the first major uh, admonition I want to give you. Do not put your confidence in God's love for you or for the people around you on the negotiating table. Do not do it. Because the moment you put it on there, you've already offered to trade it away. There are some things that we need to be settled on and established in. God loves me. He is a good father and he is treating me as a good father would. Now, he happens to have some kids that I'm not proud to be calling brothers and sisters. (laughs) And that's probably a deficit in my heart. But he loves them too, and he's working with them too. You know, I had that one vision in an ascension of people, political leaders, genuinely standing, and and, and the repentance was genuine and real. And I have to go back and visit that every now and then. It's about six months ago, seven, eight, nine, ten months ago. I have to go back and visit that now and then to realize that if the person that I am the most irritated and disappointed with, whoever that might be, politically or whatever, if that person were to really be confronted with their sin and repent, would my heart not just explode in openness to them? And I know it would. And I know yours would. So why don't we look at that possibility as a possibility from God's perspective and regard the patience of the Lord as salvation? I don't know when it's going to happen. I don't know how it's going to happen. But I know that's what God wants. That reflects his heart. And if it reflects his heart, it can reflect my heart because I am both made in his image and redeemed by his son. So we don't have to, and I, I don't want to, I'm not, I'm not trying to impose guilt on anybody for having those thoughts. God, I, I have them frequently. But I don't have to own them. I don't have to keep them. And there's nothing good in me that comes from hanging on to them. Not when I can regard the patience of the Lord as salvation. So Lord, have your way. I would love to see people that irritate me come into a full repentant knowledge okay 
So it goes on a little bit, and it says, so regard the patience of the Lord of salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul, according to wisdom, given him wrote it. So Paul reinforces this. 1 Timothy chapter 2 says essentially the same thing from the other side of the coin. But I want you to notice the context of this. I think it's so incredibly relevant. So incredibly relevant. First of all, then I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority. All right, stop there. Uh, So we had an ascension this week in which the Lord instructed us to pray for the people that dishonor us. And we all did in varying degrees of intensity. And uh, something that was pointed out to me in the process was there is a purity available to me in Christ to pray for people that I disagree with or that, and you know, this is not like a new teaching. Jesus says, you know, pray for those that despitefully use you. If you only love those who love you, how are you different than the Gentiles? And Jesus, while we were yet sinners, died for us. So this is doable. But I noticed that I was still grasping for elements of approval for doing that. So Lord, you know I don't want to but I am, so that's an act of obedience that I deserve credit for. <laughs> that's how it was run through my head. And I had to work through that. And, and, and what I longed for, and, and, and a couple of times it happened as we continued to pray, a couple of times it happened where without that, without that manipulation and without those doubts, I just genuinely had, had like a scale fall off my eyes, and I saw one of the people I was praying for what it would be like if they just really repented and really knew the love of the Lord. And so this is the context. Remember in, in the, the Second Peter verse, he says that the, he doesn't want anybody to perish, but all to come to repentance. So you can envision repentance happening. And repentance is a beautiful thing. Repentance is a beautiful thing. Uh, I'm sure you guys have read stories about the interaction between Corrie ten Boom and her, her uh, German guards. There's all kinds of stories like that. There's other people... Uh, about six months ago, there was a kind of a famous YouTube video going around about a family member praying for the person that killed their brother or sister, something like that. It's it's pretty powerful. Genuine repentance, genuine forgiveness. These are powerful, powerful things. They're backed by the the, the will and the heart of God and the blood of Jesus. And so it's, it's a real deal. So in the context of pray for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness dignity. God's not adverse to us not putting up with all this crap. He wants us to have a quiet, simple, productive life, a life of freedom. It is for freedom that Christ came to set us free. So it's not that we're looking for something selfish. We just want to live tranquil and quiet lives in godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. And there's a lesson in that. We've already talked about what God wants, so we can want what he wants, even if we don't know how it's going to happen. But look at what he wants. He wants men to be saved, all men to be saved, but he wants them to also come to a knowledge of the truth. Who is the knowledge of the truth? Who is the truth? Jesus is the truth. 
So again, we're not sacrificing the need for repentance in the passage in 2 Peter. And we're not sacrificing the need to come to a knowledge of the Lord. That's what God wants too. And we can pray that. So honestly, I think nobody in this room would have a hard time understanding that if a full-blown revelation and encounter with Jesus Christ as He is, King of kings, Lord of lords, Son of God, Savior of man, if it hit one or any or all of the people that are making the insane decisions that are being made in the tyrannical controls, their lives would change. Their lives would change by virtue of the revelation of, oh my God, because, uh, well, that's just how it works. It's how it's worked in our life. And when we need a refresher, that's how it works in our life. We see, and we're called. Okay? This is good and acceptable inside of God our Savior, who desires for all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. Um, There's something there to emphasize just a little bit. He gave himself as a ransom for all. That means that these kings and these rulers and and those who are in authority that we're praying about, even the ones we don't like and we're tempted to pray cruddy stuff on, I am, anyway. Uh, Jesus also gave himself like he did for you and like he did for me, for them. And that is an asset. It's not a burden. His sacrifice is working for the turning, the repentance, and the coming to a knowledge of the truth of the people who are making these incredibly horrible decisions and impacting our lives. And somehow we need to be able to to realize that. So plug that in there. The patience of God leads to salvation and Jesus is actively poured out for the very people that we wish were not behaving the way they were behaving. Kings and rulers and authorities and so on. He gave himself a ransom for all. Now, back up a little bit in 1 Timothy and you're going to see something that gave Paul an advantage to seeing this truth it can also maybe be for us. But look at this. I thank Jesus Christ our Lord who has strengthened me because he's considered me faithful, putting me into service. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. Now, the reason I wanted to bring this scripture up is we know enough, having read the New Testament, of the story of Saul Tarsus. And he was standing there approving of the stoning of the first martyr, Stephen. He was zealous, and he went and asked permission to persecute those in the way. And he was dragging people out of their homes and putting them in prison. And he was on the road to Damascus with papers in hand to terrorize those who had accepted Jesus. He characterizes himself as, even though I was formerly a blasphemer, and a persecutor, and a violent aggressor. So, Al, when I'm thinking about the position the police get stuck in back there, evicting people or locking people up for going to, uh, into town, or when we consider what I consider to be just a horrific tragedy that nurses and doctors who've been serving 
for a whole year trying to keep people alive because they recognize the risk in the vaccine and don't want to take it, they are now turned into pariah. This is violent aggression against those people. This is violent aggression. This is persecution. So attach whatever leader's persona or name you want and plug them into that formula that currently they are that. And yet, Paul says, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance. I would like, because it makes it easier to hate, I would like to think that everybody that's making these kind of creepy decisions is doing so in a cold-blooded rationale. But I don't think they are. I think they're operating out of misinformation or fear or pressure on their own. Not everybody, but a lot of people. Especially when this stuff gets translated down to your company, Jason, or to you know, the administrators where Sherry's working. These are people that are just whatever, you know, trying to keep their job, uh, drawing the facts as they hear them. I, I've, I've heard some arguments out in public where um, vaccinated people are genuinely terrified that somehow an unvaccinated person poses a threat to them. The logic totally escapes me. If you're vaccinated, didn't that mean you're okay? You know, uh, So what if I sneeze on you? It shouldn't make any difference. But it's just a fear-related thing. Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Jesus Christ. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Jesus Christ, or that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. There is our outlet. Do I think that uh, the lying and the political manipulation is sin? I do. I think it's being done by sinners. But those are the very people that Jesus came to die for. If we believe that, that the patience of the Lord leads to salvation, if we believe that God can, because a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day, He can see room in our time frame and in our culture to bring about a great revival, a bunch of those people are going to be the object of that awakening. A bunch of the people that are currently abusing authority, acting in ignorance, and manipulating, being violent persecutors. We have to leave room for God to do that. We have to take his side if possible. And if we can take his side in it, if we can see that, Lord, you really are trying to do this. You're really trying. There's something to be. You know, a lot of people have prophesied about the need for things to be exposed. Uh, you know, what is spoken in secret will be exposed on the housetop. You see that in those Veritas videos and stuff. Well, yeah, but the point of that exposure is not just a gotcha. The point is to lead to repentance, to lead to transformation. So anyway, Paul's an example of that. He says, yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me, the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. So once again, we're being called only to have what our Father has, only to have what Jesus is actively, historically, and currently demonstrated. We are to share in the patience of God through these trials. Keep our heart soft and in control 
and aligned with the will of the Father, which is that everybody would repent. Yes, absolutely, I want that. That nobody would perish. I would like that. That everybody gets saved. I would like that. And they come to a full knowledge of the truth, step out of that ignorance. So that's, it's just something, I, I, I believe there's a, I believe that there's a, there's a healing component a sustaining component for our spirit if we can do it. And nobody's asking any of us to like what's going on. But we have to keep our we have to keep our victim sort of status at bay and our hearts turned toward God. Okay? Now, one of the more serious questions that I hear is uh um well it's, it's this one and it's related to a lot of the eschatology and a lot of the beliefs about eschatology that I grew up with, and I know a lot of people uh, believe and, and are currently living in and stuff, this idea about, uh, gosh, what if it's so hard? What if I don't bear up under it well? What if I deny? So there's this terrifically semi-terrifying verse in Matthew 10. Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. So I wanted, in the midst of this, to pull what I think is about the only illustration in the Scripture out about a person who did exactly that. A person of note. Okay? This is in John chapter 13, end of the chapter. Jesus having the Last Supper with the disciples, preparing them for his departure. And he, he, uh, Simon Peter says to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly. I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. Now, here's point one that I want you to see. Unfortunately, in most of our Bibles, there's a chapter break. This is the next thing Jesus says. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. So now read those two lines together. Makes it sound entirely different. Will you lay down your life for me, Peter? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. I think this begins to reveal the commitment of the heart of the Father, the commitment of the heart of Jesus to get us through these things. Okay? Now, Here's the gory details. It was about a day and a half later. As Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the frightening and fierce servant girls. Oh, this is a little commentary on my part, sorry. Peter, I'm not trying to give you a hard time, buddy. I'm with you. One of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with Jesus the Nazarene, but he denied it. 
saying, I neither know nor understand what you're talking about. And he went out onto the porch to get away from the servant girl, apparently. And she followed him. And she began once more to say to the bystanders, this is one of them. But he again denied it. And now after a little while, the bystanders were saying to Peter, surely you are one of him, for you're a Galilean too. But to uh, kind of bring this awkward episode to a close, he began to curse and swear, I do not know this man you are talking about. Immediately a rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had made the remark to him, before a rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he began to weep. So what I want you to see in this is there's no getting away from the fact that Peter denied him. He absolutely, thoroughly, intentionally did. So we have this perfect opportunity, which is much like the one I love in the story of the woman caught in adultery presented at the temple. Because the scripture is clear about what God thinks about adultery. He hates it. Jesus made it clear what the Father thinks about a woman who's victimized in adultery. He defended her. He loved her. He protected her. So now we have a person we can look at that did what Jesus said don't do in Matthew 10, and that's deny him. So how does Jesus treat him? And this is something that should be taught more about, but I I just want you to think about it. All right. So here is in Luke chapter 24. And they remembered his words and returned from the tomb. This is the women coming up here to report all these to the 11 and to all the rest. Now they were Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and also other women with them were telling these things to the apostles. So you remember the story. The gals were at the tomb. Uh, Mary ended up seeing Jesus uh, as the thought he was a gardener he was raised. Anyhow, they were all amazed and mystified by this. And uh, this is, of course, after Jesus died, rose again. So we're, you know, coming up on maybe a week from that first statement when Jesus said, five-day week or something like that, that first statement when Jesus said, you know, you're going to deny me. So, um, but these words appeared to them. So the words the women were speaking appeared to the apostles, the 11, as nonsense. And they would not believe them. But look what happened. Peter, Peter got up and ran to the tomb, stooping in, looking in. He saw the linen wrappings, and he went away to his home, marveling at what had happened. Even though he had walked away, there's another one of the Gospels, I think it's in Matthew, but I'm not sure. There's another one of the Gospels that points out that when Peter made that third denial, He was out in an area where he could see Jesus as Jesus was being whipped or whatever. And Jesus looked at him and he went away and wept bitterly, it says. So imagine the intensity of this failure to Peter. This denial. Was it good that he denied Jesus? No. Did he? Yes. 
Jesus' response? Well, Peter's the first one. Somehow he retained that hope. Somehow he did. He ran to the tomb and he went away to his home. Important point. He went away to his home marveling. But he, wasn't, he didn't go back to the other disciples. A little further on, this is the story of, the, of Jesus appearing to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And you remember the story? He walked along and he was asking them, so what, what are you all downcast for? And all this kind of, Then he began to explain himself from the Scriptures. So we're picking up this story. They said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road? This is after they recognized who Jesus was by breaking bread with him. Okay? Um, and while he was explaining Scripture to us, and they got up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem, and look at what is being said. And found gathered together the eleven and those who were with them, saying, now, it's not the two disciples that just showed up that are saying anything right now. It's what they were talking about among the eleven and the others that were with them. Okay, Probably the women were there, whatever. They got up that very hour, returned to Jerusalem, and found gathered together the eleven and those who were with them, saying, the Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon. Appeared to Simon. They began to relate their experience on the road. Now that's the disciples that came from Emmaus. They began to relate their experience on the road and how he was recognized them by the breaking of bread. Okay, here's the final confirmation of this reality, and I want to talk to you a little bit about it. Because I want you to understand what God is going to do for us in the midst of all this pressure. Paul's saying, as he's describing communion and so on, uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, and this is the gospel thing that we looked at in our story, remember? So it's right in the heart of this super important thing. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to Scripture, and that he was buried and that he was raised in the third day according to Scripture. This is the context, the, the, the death and resurrection of Jesus, the gift of God, of his Son. The gospel, the good news. And that he appeared to Cephas and then the twelve. Now we have the gory details of, of Peter's crumbling there at the trial and his denial. But we were spared by the Holy Spirit the intimacy and the secrecy of Jesus appearing first to Peter and healing his broken heart, and cleansing him of shame, and lifting off of him his guilt. And I don't have time, but we could go and and check the first part of Acts, and Peter's not suffering from that. He's roaring. He's roaring. Somehow, this has got to be one of those, it was too precious for the Holy Spirit to put in the Scriptures for us to be a voyeur over Jesus knew that he had to heal the heart of Peter. And he was 100% disposed to do so. His first trip upon rising was to go to his friend Peter, his disciple Peter, the one upon uh, whom the Father had bestowed bestowed that revelation that he was building the church. He went to Peter. And I just know he took him in his arms. And he said, it's okay. I forgive you. 
It's okay. And I'm here to tell you, you don't need to be afraid of failing. Because he is on your side. He is on our side. So when I slip into the murderous judgments that I render from time to time, I'm not liking it, but I want to repent of it. And and Father never turns away. I'm not encouraging us to deny. I'm not encouraging us. I'm saying he knows us. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame, and he is mindful that we are but dust. Do not let slip your knowledge that God is before all and else your father, and he sees you as his children. We're not alone in this. We're not distant in this. And that is what the enemy and what our flesh wants us to think, that God is somehow out here waiting for us to perform properly. I'm all for performing properly. But that is not the relationship you have with your father. It is not the heart he has for you. He loves you. And he knows that these are tough times. He knows it. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Where we got the idea that we were somehow on our own to try to work out the call and the destiny and the purpose of our life and our sonship. Please be delivered of that lie. God is in work in you and me to cause us to get through this, to cause us to see this. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. This is just a little counsel from the apostle. So that you will prove yourself to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Again, we're back to this idea of the people that we're supposed to be praying for, the kings, the rulers, the authorities. There is a crookedness and a perversity among them right now. There is. It's terrible. And it's not unique to our country. You know, the situation over in Uganda, I got familiar with it when I was over there and the the horrific abuses that the, the president and his family, they just steal stuff from people. You know, the resources. But God is at work. And we have the opportunity to be a part of that work by just simply keeping in mind whose we belong to, whose we are, that we're children of a good father, and that he's at work to fulfill his desires for every person 
if possible, to not perish, but to come to a knowledge of the truth. So we're going to find ourselves useful in small circles and some in large, if we can keep this stuff straight. But mostly, I don't want to lay another burden on you. I just want you to know, God is not setting you up to potentially fall. He is in you and with you to succeed in the midst of trial. Okay? So, Father, please reinforce to us the reality of your goodness and your presence in our lives. Help us take the lessons from Jesus, the unbelievably intimate love you poured out on Peter after that catastrophic failure. And I'm not saying that I wouldn't have succumbed in the same way, Lord. But I just thank you that you would have responded in the same way. Father, a lot of people are hurting right now. Their jobs are threatened. There's fear. There's all kinds of stuff. There's anger. There's frustration. There's a place for all of that, Lord. But you say, don't let the sun go down on our anger. And so I pray that just day by day, we will be renewed in our confidence in our confidence in you as our Father, in your love for us, and the fact that your patience is leading to salvation for many. And we bless you for that. We join you with that hope. And give us the grace, and we'll pray for those that are despitefully using this, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.